You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to podcast episode 41 for Monday the 12th of December 2016. My guest this week is author Melissa Addy. Melissa writes historical novels and non-fiction books. The first novel, which was set in China, The Fragrant Concubine, was longlisted for both the Muslexia Novel Competition and the Historical Novel Society India Award. It landed Melissa an agent. She also writes non-fiction books, the first being 100 Things to Do While Breastfeeding and the second titled The Happy Commuter. Melissa has just finished being a writer-in-residence at the British Library in London and spent three months this year being a blogger for Muslexia, the UK's best-selling magazine for women who write. When I spoke to Melissa, I started by asking her what initially piqued her interest in writing historical fiction. I think it was just, I've always, when I was a child, I used to read a lot of mythology and legends and that kind of thing and that sort of is looking back into the past and um so i think over time that that became the the interest in historical fiction um and what i tend to get sort of drawn in by is some sort of very minor mention it's usually a tiny little footnote or a little comment like a throwaway line about oh yeah and there was this woman and she did blah and you go hang on a minute stop what was that (laughs) And and that kind of draws you in and you start investigating that and then you find out more and more. Um, and so that's, I like that. I sort of call it the footnotes of history, but it's just finding those little tiny things that seem to be not important. And then when the more you explore them, the more you get a feeling of that, of that uh, history and that era. What brought you to writing in the first place? Was it the writing first, then the history, or was it the history first, then the writing? No, it was, the, it was probably the writing first. Um, I read read a lot and I think if the more and more you read after a bit you start thinking about the stories you would tell um, and so I did writing sort of off and on I worked in business for about 15 years and during that time I was doing a bit of writing here and there more as a kind of hobby thing and then it sort of became more and more important to me and I did more and more of it um, so you know certainly initially I'd sort of you know go and do a, an evening course in short story and things like that and it was just a kind of pleasant hobby and then it sort of it becomes an all-consuming passion over time so uh, that's that's how that developed I think. And were you publishing any of your work in the early days were you getting feedback about it? Um, a little bit I published in a few um, magazines and things so Juno magazine which is a sort of alternative parenting place I did some children's stories and a few articles about you know presents to give to them and that sort of thing um so a little bit here and there but I do think at the time it was very hobby like and so it was kind of oh you know when you send out a a query letter it was like this massive deal and you'd spend hours agonizing over it and I think now nowadays I just like well just send 10 of them out and one of them will stick you know don't get in such a state about it um so I think that 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 developed as well over time more or just getting on with it more and being more professional about it rather than it just being a hobby on the side. What was your first full length book then? And did it ever see the light of day as a formal publication? Uh, the first full length book was a, 
um, a historical novel set in Morocco in the 11th century, and I planned it as a trilogy. I did the synopsis for all three. I read the first one and half of the second one, and then I started trying to get an agent with it. Um, and I sent it out to a lot of agents, and they were very nice about it, which was good because that encouraged me, but they all said no. And I thought that they, it must not be that bad or they wouldn't be pleasant. They don't need to be pleasant pleasant they can just say no thanks um so then i went to the york writers festival which they still do now and it's, it's a really really nice festival it's about three days long but the great thing about it is you get to sit down with two agents um and speak to them face to face and i thought this is what i need i need the bit where you say would you like this and they say no and you say why and <laughs> um, so that you can get a bit more detail out of them and they were fascinating conversations because without knowing one another and without knowing what the other one had said, they both said exactly the same thing to me, which was, you've picked a really small niche period of history that nobody else has written about, which I thought was a really good thing. I thought I'm, I'm carving out my own little niche and that's a good idea. Um, they said, no, you're a first time writer. You're a big enough risk as it is. You should be writing something that's popular and known and both of them said, how about the Tudors? And I just went, I, you know, I love reading about the Tudors, but I've already read about six versions of Anne Boleyn myself, and I'm getting a little weary of it. Um, so, but I took on board what they said. I understood what they were saying. So I said, okay, well, this is the other idea I've got is set in China in the Forbidden City. And they kind of both perked up and went, yes, yes, write that. Which, on the one hand, was an exhausting idea because I... You know, that means you've got to go away and do six months to a year of research and start all over again. But, you know, I took it on board. And I think particularly the two of them saying the same thing without any reference to each other. I thought, OK, I'm, I'm learning to play the game. This is how the game works. So I went off and I did the research and I wrote The Fragrant Concubine. Um, and that got me an agent um, and got close to getting traditionally published, but not quite. And what was the feedback from the agent then, uh, th this time around, when, when it got knocked back? Um, the feedback this time was we sent out the fragrant concubine to pretty much all the big people I've ever heard of, publishers, and we had really nice feedback every time. It was kind of, oh, this is really lovely, we really like it, um, but no thanks, every time. And that got a bit, <laughs> I got a bit depressing after a while, and then we got very close with HarperCollins, they said, um, oh, we really like this. The ending needs tensing up a bit. It's a little bit not, not quite tense enough. Can you do something with that? And then bring it back. So we got really excited. We got an editor in. We ripped the whole thing apart. We put it all back together again. We sent it in. And they said, oh, yes, really like that. Very, you know, really sorted out the ending. Well done. Uh, but we just bought something very similar. Oh. <laughs> so no thanks. Uh, which was one of those awful moments where you just go, Really? <laughs> Really, um, and I think at that point, I kind of felt this is a good enough book because I've had decent enough feedback, and it's just been luck of the draw that it didn't hit the right person at the right time. And I thought I am not going to put this in a drawer. I'm going to self-publish it and just just play with it, just have some fun with it. And I think I I worked in business for years, mentoring entrepreneurs, and I think if you talk to 500 entrepreneurs after a bit, the entrepreneurial spirit rubs off on you and you just go no you know what i'll do it myself so actually i have quite a lot of fun doing that because you get to choose your own book cover you get to say how everything is done um and it was a very good learning experience 
Very interesting that you went to the Festival of Writing in York. I've been there for two years now, and I, I pretty yeah. well go for the agent feedback because you can see the whites of their eyes. And as you say, uh, rather than just getting this dismissive letter, you can actually dig into that a little bit and just find out, well, what do you mean by that? And what can I do? And how can I improve? It is a tremendously valuable experience, isn't it? And you sound like you really valued it. Yeah. Yes, I did. I did definitely. And as soon as I get enough time from small children, I will be heading straight back there. Um, yes, definitely being able to talk to an agent, because this is the one thing you never really get to do. You get to do all sorts of other things. Um, and, you know, being going to workshops and that sort of thing is lovely as well as part of the festival. But the agents is, is just such a golden opportunity to actually say why and how and, well, do you like this other idea? And just get a bit of direct feedback. So it's very, very useful. What did self-publishing mean for you then? Did it mean that you got your hands dirty and did all of it? <laughs> um, not quite. Um, I use a lovely company called Streetlight Graphics in America and they do my book covers and all the designing and formatting for the interiors, both ebooks and paperbacks, um, because I had to kind of make a decision and think, am I going to learn a whole new set of skills on top of everything else I'm trying to do and I just thought no I you know if I had loads of time I would have sat down and learned the formatting not the book covers because I think they should always be done by a professional um but definitely the formatting and as it was I just thought no I'm going to give this to someone who knows what they're doing um and let, let them do it um so they they are lovely and I use them for all my books now and I hope to carry on doing that really I'd rather stick with the writing <laughs> I, I think it's a good idea, actually, because um, I actually documented all the things that I do with my books. I just thought, this is ridiculous. I've got to outsource some of this. And as you say, you know, focus on the, well, hopefully income producing task, the creative bit, which no one else can do, which is actually yeah. doing the books, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. And, and, you know, that is exactly as you say, that's the thing that you can bring that's special and different. And somebody else can do their special and different thing, which is do the formatting or the book covers probably a lot better than you can so i've just been uh, teaching self-publishing at the weekend at a local book festival and and many of the people there have have done the book they've uploaded it and then it just sits there and, and nothing happens so when you uploaded your first book how did you ignite the spark uh, I find it, it's really interesting. I think the first time you upload a book, you think, oh, my God, oh, my God, is it, is it going to be exactly right? And have I done everything properly and, and everything? And then you put it up there and you go, oh, it, it doesn't actually sell on its own. That's, that's interesting. So it doesn't really matter if you got it wrong. <laughs> um, and I actually found that almost comforting that, it, you know, it's not like 20 million copies will suddenly sell and you're a millionaire somewhere. Um, it's not going to sell unless you do something. Um, so that was, I almost found that comforting, really. Um, so I, I put it up and then I started promoting it as best I could in terms of, you know, via my friends and on Facebook and trying to draw attention to it. Um, some things I wouldn't do again. I've done things where you send out tons of copies of different books, both the historical and the nonfiction that I write, to, you know, all the people that you think are going to review it and things and they just so don't um and it's kind of a waste of time and money really unless you've got an amazingly targeted book for that 
exact person that's going to review it um, and even then not always um, I think it's more of an organic thing I think um, reviews may make a huge difference especially on Amazon I know and, and it's probably mean of me but I don't buy things unless they've got good reviews um, so I can understand why other people wouldn't um, I'm working with um, Nick Stevenson's approach so uh, building up an email marketing list um, and so that's I wrote a novella to go with the historical novel so that the novella would be what he calls a reader magnet so you have something that you give to the reader in return for their email address so you're building up a marketing list so that eventually when you launch new books you've got a ready and willing audience that are, are happy that you've brought a new book out. Now I noticed that you are listed on Goodreads have you ever tried a Goodreads giveaway? Yeah, I've done those. Um, I'm not, I, I think it's a really good idea and it's sort of halfway right and they haven't quite fixed the other half. And the reason for that is you put your book up, you get, I mean, amazing figures, like 2,000 people go, yes, please, I'd like that book. Uh, and then when the contest is won, you hand out how many copies you've decided to hand out. I usually gave two or three uh, and that's it. And, and you don't get their email addresses of the people that were so keen on your book. You don't get any way of contacting them. And, you know, if you enter a competition and then a month later you haven't heard back, you don't generally remember it for that long. And also, if you think you're going to win the competition, you're not going to buy the book until after the competition's over and by that time you may have forgotten about it so there's something that doesn't quite work on goodreads it's a really good idea and but it doesn't quite follow through i think if they then even if they didn't give you the the email list if they then emailed out on your behalf something that said you didn't win but hey do you remember this was the book that you were interested in here's a preview of it or whatever that would probably work better I think those are excellent points. That yes, because the only residual benefit you get is if they happen to mark it as a book to read. That's the only way you can see yeah. who expressed an interest in it. And I'm the same as you. Um, you know, as an unknown author, put books up. You're getting well over a thousand every time you list a book. Uh, and that's a, for a new author, that would be like gold dust to help you to build your list and get to get some impetus. Even if you maybe had to pay a little bit extra to get yes. hold of that. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, because I, I know a lot of indie authors are now working on this concept of a mailing list and have a freebie to give, even if you were able then to have them send out a mail shot and say, well, you know, you didn't win the main novel, but hey, there's a freebie if you wanted to go collect that, at least you'd be kind of building your email marketing list. So there's something not quite right there, but I, I guess over time, maybe they'll fix it. Your uh, covers are beautiful. They're very consistent, so they're obviously part of a of a series. The, the branding is good. The colours are beautiful. Um, and Thanks. before before you and I spoke, I said to you, I just had to do a double check before we, we did the interview because I thought those covers and, and your presentation is so good that I thought, are you self-published or did you just self-publish you know, a couple of them? Um, so hopefully that's that should be the, the highest form of compliment, I hope, for an independent author. <laughs> um, so the covers are from streetlightgraphics.com um, that's their website they're a really nice company in america um they work with you so well um so you say i, I sort of want this here's some pictures of other 
the things in the market that are kind of aiming for but I don't like this but I like that but I want the other thing um, they let you pick out images from a, a photo library and then you will work together to put it on so for example for the fragrant concubine it was very complicated because I needed to go on the front but dress she had to have the headdress and the kind of all the accoutrements on her hairstyle from the Qing era and I mean there just aren't pictures of that so we he had to kind of create this hairstyle for her and I was going no more pearls more flowers more something less of that more of the other and he just went back and forth for so long to get the first one right um and he was great so I I love using them um I do think your covers should always be done by a professional and this goes back to me developing products any kind of products because at the end of the day their book as a product and people used to come to me and they even if they were really creative people and they had a really good concept they'd have tried to do their own packaging and I would look at it and just go you did this didn't you I know you did this because it doesn't look professional you have to go to a designer and I think it's the same with with books you even really nice ideas and really good images and everything I can look at it and go I I think you did that yourself and designed books just look different and also so there is still a bit of a stigma around self-publishing and people sort of think, well, how do I know what the quality is going to be? And I think at the very least, you shouldn't be judged before people have read the book. Um, and so I, I try very hard with my books that you sh- shouldn't know that they're self-published when you look at them. Because, you you know, if you want to find that out after you read the book and you like it, that's absolutely fine by me. Um, but you shouldn't be looking at it at the beginning and go, well, I'm not going to read that because it's self-published. Um, so, for example, I, I just picked up any book and you look on the spine and you think, what does it have? It has the name of the book. It has your name as the author. And it always, always has a logo. And the logo is the publisher. And people don't care who your publisher is. I don't go around going, well, I'm not going to read that because it's not from my favorite publisher. Um, but they do care about the look of it. And it's such a tiny thing. So I just developed my own imprint. It's called Letterpress Publishing. And I just put a teeny tiny logo on there. So all my books, they look like someone else published them. Um, and that's that's as it should be, I think. And on the back, they have to have the barcode. They have to have the quotes, you know, the testimonials from people. It just needs to look the way a traditionally published book looks, I think. You've gone for paperbacks as well. Um, did you go down, is this all done in-house with your uh, American service or did you go down the Create Space or Ingram Spark route for that? No, uh, they they do paperback as well. So they, they design everything and then they'll do whatever formats you want. You can have paperback, you can have... Uh, ebooks whatever i mean i sell far more ebooks than i do paperbacks but i i'm a bookie person i like to hold a real book um so i even the novella i mean basically that's an ebook for me to give away free but i still had it done in paperback as well because i wanted one on my shelf and i wanted to hold it um so yes i do both i do both and being an American company then, how did your ISBNs work? Did you get a, a, a Nielsen ISBN and let them have it? Yes, I use Nielsen, yes. And, and again, I kind of, I know you can get the free ones and everything. And I, God knows I spent hours reading up on all the differences and the pros and cons until I was sick of the whole thing. But in the end, I just thought, I'm in this for the long, long run. You know, let's go. Let's buy 100 of them and just work with that um, rather than 
each time have a free one and then wonder whether someone else's one is going to be another free one and it it all gets very confusing did you then aspire to get the books stocked in, in bookshops and have you managed to achieve that um i kind of accepted at the beginning that that was going to be a very difficult thing to do and would use up a lot of time if i had a lot more time i would probably work harder on that just just to, to see what it's like and just to find out how that would work the one that i would most like to get into a bookshop because i think it would really work um there is a book i the first book i published actually it's called 100 things to do while breastfeeding because that's what i was doing um and i wrote it while breastfeeding and i think that is a book that really is a browsing thing it's a thing where you just you're in a shop and you go oh look at that oh that would make a good present or that kind of thing and there's a lovely shop that sells baby clothes who were very kind and and um sent out my my uh, i did like little postcards to promote that book and they put one in every single bag that they were selling of the baby clothes and things which was super kind of them and i just thought that would be perfect in a bookshop like that so a few of them i would like to work more on that but you know you need time Interestingly, with that book, you've got, uh, this is the 100 Things to Do While Breastfeeding. You did an audio version of that book. Yes. So that one I worked with ACX, um, and it's an amazing system. I have to say Amazon make life easy for you sometimes. Um, it's an amazing system. You go on and you you say, this is the book. You get a little bit about it. Um, I really would like a narrator for it. You can split the royalties with them. And I got a uh, an English uh she's native english but living in america and she picked it up and said yes i'm interested in this very professional woman she sent me a little a little example of what she sounded like and then she did like test chapters and as she went along she was always letting me have the next chapter the next chapter um and we'd sort of agree on different things and now if that whenever that sells um she gets uh 50-50 royalties with me um which to say she did an awful lot of the work, I have to say, um, I, I thought was a brilliant system. And it's quite nice. That one in particular, I think, because, you know, if you're holding a baby and you're breastfeeding and stuff, you might not have spare hands for holding books and things. An audio version seemed like a particularly good idea. Mm, yeah, I agree with you. It's an inspired idea. Um, when you, um, you presumably then, well, you were an unknown author at that time. And I'm very interested in this because I've done the ACX thing too. And I just figured, oh, uh, no one will want to go revenue share with me because I'm unknown. And therefore, it's a bit of a punt on their part. But it sounds like you managed to do that. Had you got a sales record at that time? No, <laughs> no, it was barely out. Uh, um, I think... I think she she liked the concept of it, and I'd had a little bit of interest in it um, press-wise, and she just thought it was worth having a go at. Um, and also, it's a fairly short book, that one. And I have, I did try with The Fragrant Concubine to put that out, but that's like a 400-page novel. And I had a couple of people say, it's just, it's too much work to take a punt on, which is fair, fair enough. You know, I can see that. So it sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But with something short... Uh, and and sort of easy to fit in around whatever else she was doing. And also, I think I was fairly flexible. I said, I'm not in a hurry for it. You do it when you've got time. You fit it around anything else you're doing. And so that was probably interesting to her as well. 
and you've done a second non-fiction book, The Happy Commuter, over a hundred ways to improve and enjoy your commute. Were you commuting at that time when that one was written or was it from memories? <laughs> it was mostly from memories. Um, that was because when I did the breastfeeding one, an awful lot of people said, yeah, but you could do some of these things when you're doing other stuff that's boring, like sitting around in waiting rooms or commuting or whatever. And then I looked into commuting statistics and it's so bad for you. It, it sort of it messes you up physically, emotionally, mentally. It's awful. It's really, really bad. Um, and I thought, now, hang on a minute. The reason it's making people stressed and, you know, not taking care of themselves and upset and all these things is because they're bored and they're sat there with nothing to do except be annoyed about the mode of transport they're in, whatever mode of transport it is. So I put together a set of ideas, which was some of them were similar to the breastfeeding one, but of course you've got a different set of interests and a different uh, capability. You've got two hands free for starters. Um, so I wrote that one for commuters. And that that one's interesting because it draws a lot of journalistic interest. So I've been interviewed twice on radio for that one because it's such a, it's the sort of topic radio stations tend to, pick up on because that's the people that are listening to them I think. What was your experience of being interviewed on the radio? I know um, from the journalist's point of view that sometimes people would come in and have massive expectations that they'd be on the radio and then by the end of the week you know they'd be the next Mark Zuckerberg and mm-hmm. it doesn't really happen like that does it? No it really really doesn't um, I've got a I mean, I had fun doing it because I like talking, so I'm all right. Um, <laughs> it's quite interesting watching them working because it's so fast, the turnaround. So, you know, the poor presenter, I don't know how they do it. Then you've got the presenter and they're having these people kind of thrown at them. Here you are, here you are. You've got them for 10 minutes. Go, 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 go. Talk to them. And then we're going to take them away again. And then we're going to bring you another person. I mean, it must just be really quite tiring, I think, as a, as a host. Um, but I had quite fun being on it. But I have to say, I I got, uh, for example, I had a huge piece of press in the Evening Standard. I got practically a whole page, amazing review of the, the Happy Commuter, really nice things about it, to the perfect commuting audience. I mean, they've got 1.7 million people reading it, and they're all commuters. And I thought, oh, my God, watch the sales go. And I can tell you, this is the good thing about um, being able to track your own sales. I got... An uplift of 12 books and I just thought interesting and I just think there's that you you think uh, yeah I think people possibly think it's the, you know the one thing and it will suddenly explode but that isn't really how people buy mostly they see they have to see it several times they need to see it you know yes so, oh yeah I remember it was an evening so oh yeah now it's on the radio oh yeah now it's something uh it doesn't work just on a one <laughs> on one go but that's an interesting thing to find out you know well you'll know this uh, from working with entrepreneurs because I, I work with local businesses too and I always say to them when I'm talking about advertising and using social media and things that actually people need at least I think it's seven contacts isn't it before they'll they'll make a purchase and um, it's the same with books what you're what you're telling me is it's the, it's the same as books that they need to see it several times it needs to get into their subconscious before they'll even really register it I guess and make that purchase decision yes absolutely I think that's absolutely true and that and so that means you've got to keep at it keep at it the nicest thing though about self-publishing i think is that there isn't a deadline you know 
I think with traditional publishing, you bring out the book and it's like the clock's ticking. You've got, you've got what, three months and it's not selling? Well, that's the end of that then. Sorry, bye. Um, and, and I think that's just a really bad way of pushing a book. Um, but with self-publishing, you know, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to do it all at once this very minute second. People will quite happily discover your back catalogue later on if you discover a new way of marketing it um you know so i don't i i think that's a nice thing in that you don't have to panic and think oh i i haven't i haven't marketed that one enough you're like okay well when you get time go back to it and do something else with it and find a new way of getting people's attention now you've self-published where does that leave you with your agent have you continued that relationship yes i have she's a she's a really really nice woman um she just basically said, yes, I, I understand that you want it, you want it out there. I get that. Um, you know, come back to me next time you want to have a go with another book. Um, she's, a, she's a very, very encouraging and positive woman and, and really does her job very well. I mean, I saw all the emails that went out and all the emails that came back and I could see that she was pushing it all the time. So it wasn't any failing on her part, certainly. Um and I think it's always worth having all the options open, really. I quite like self-publishing, but that doesn't mean that you don't consider what traditional publishing can do for you. And also having an agent means uh, that somebody else who's thinking about you and pushing you when they get a chance. And, you know, in the in the going back to this thing of sometimes people look at self-publishing and go, mm, you can't be a, you know, you can't be a proper writer then. Being able to go, actually, I have a literary agent, which somehow is this sort of badge of success, um, means, you know, it's another little thing that you can say, well, no, actually, I do have that. It's just we've chosen to go another way with this one. And you could also boast that you're a writer in residence at the British Library. Now, that's pretty posh, isn't it? That's pretty brand worthy, <laughs> that is. That is, yeah, that is my, it's been absolutely amazing. I'm in the last month of it now, so it's a bit heavy because um, we're trying to wrap everything up but it has been absolutely wonderful loved every minute and um, we did uh, so they have a, a, a business and IP center um, which I knew from when I was working with entrepreneurs um, so when I started, decided to focus on the writing full-time as much as I can around two kids um, I said to them I found this grant um, making trust the lever Hume trust and I said how about it? Let's, let's have a go. Let's see if they'll give us the grant. And I really didn't think they would, but I thought it's worth trying. You've got to have a go at these things. And they said, okay. And we applied and we got this letter and I literally just danced around the living room, just screaming about it, going, ah, I've got a grant to go work at the British Library for a year. Oh my God. Um, and, and my small son was very unimpressed. He just kind of went, you're going where? And I said, oh, mummy, mummy's going to work at this, uh, the the library is going to be so cool. I could just see him like picturing the local library and going, big deal. I was like, no, no, like a really special library. Like, wow. And it's like, whatever. Um, but it's been brilliant. And so through that, I focused on storytelling for businesses. So teaching entrepreneurs how to tell stories. So from that, I've got a book that's coming out and that is called The Storytelling Entrepreneur. And it's specifically written for the entrepreneurs because a lot of storytelling for business books are written for massive global corporations and it's just a completely different set of needs and the other 
element was business for storytellers, so for writers. So uh, because of having a product development background, um, I've written a book. But this one is called Merchandise for Authors, and the idea is that a lot of authors don't seem to develop merchandise, which is weird because bands and films and a lot of other art areas do this, and yet authors don't so much unless they're dead. dead or in which case other people are making money out of them because they're out of copyright or they are hugely famous and it's really because of a film deal that they're doing merchandise Mm, that's a very interesting way of thinking about it now this which brings me to your entrepreneurialism because by by landing a grant to work at the british library that's pretty good in all sorts of ways Um, presumably it creates income for you to allow you to write to create things that you can sell but it's also very good for your marketing and your your profile and your prominence as an author too. I mean, there's no losing in this, is there? No, no losing at all. <laughs> um, no, it's it's really good, and I do I do think it's enormously important if you're wanting to be a full time author, if that's what you've got in mind, to be really entrepreneurial about it, and that means um, looking out for all opportunities and thinking to yourself. I need to be paid for this. And I, I think an awful lot of writers have a sort of, the, oh, I must be a, a starving artist in a garret thing. And I just I just don't buy that. I really don't buy that. Yes, it's hard to get paid because people somehow think that you should be writing for the love of it. And I think, yeah, but I loved my other jobs that I've done during the years. I've mostly enjoyed all my jobs and I got paid for them. So I don't really see the difference. Um, so, yeah. The writer residency was fantastic because it gave me uh, paid time to go and do writing, which is a wonderful feeling. Um, And I'm very, very lucky because I've just now, as I'm finishing this, I've got a studentship, which is a funny word, but it's like a scholarship, um, to go and do a creative writing PhD. Um, And again, that means I've got three years where I'm going to be paid to sit there and write a novel and write the academic work that goes with it. May I ask? <laughs> um, that one took, uh, it took about a year and a half of applying. That's what it took, um, of tweaking and retweaking a proposal and applying to an awful lot of different universities because there is such competition for the funding obviously because everyone would like to have it and you are competing not just against the other creative writing people you're competing against the whole of the humanities departments um so that it, it takes a lot of work it's it's not a oh that's hurrah we've got money to do loads of things but it, it does take work but it's so so worth it if you get it um so i had a, a first round last year and i didn't get it and I thought, I'm going to give this another go because now I know what I'm doing a bit more. I'm going to make a better job of it. And I had another go and I got it. And that's, you know, it's an amazing privilege to be able to do that. Um, for those of us who managed to get grants many, many years ago, I thought that was the end of funding. So, so do these courses then, do they all or most of them have these funding systems for, for mature students? Yes. So the PhDs, there, there is a certain set of funding available. Um, it is very competitive, but it is available. And there's a wonderful um, site called the Post... I'm going to try and get this right now. The Alternative Guide to Postgraduate Funding. Um, and they're these two students. They're very smart. They were trying to do their PhDs. 
but they didn't manage to get the main funding. So they basically went and found all these trusts and charities and all sorts of other organisations and approached them and got little lumps of funding and put it all together to make to fund their studies and so now they have this wonderful website um which you can pay a subscription for and it lists hundreds and hundreds of grant making companies uh, organizations and you can try and put together your funding from that which i started doing um because i thought i might not get the main funding but it, you know again it takes a lot of work but it's it's worth it it's very interesting. Um, I want to delve into the fact that you were home educated. Were you always home educated uh, as a child? Yes. So um, <laughs> I, I was the first child. And I think my mum kind of did that thing where, you know, you teach you a bit of the alphabet, a bit of this and a bit of that. And I learned to read quite quickly and easily. And that has always been my thing. I speed read. It's it just it's a very natural thing to me. And I think that probably came for a false sense of security. <laughs> she probably went, oh, this is easy, this. Right, let's do it with everybody. Um, so she home-educated three children, me and my brother until all the way through until we went to university, and my sister until she was about 11 because then she decided she wanted to go to school. So, yes, I was home-educated all the way through. And the first time I sat in a normal class environment was at university, and it was it was a really weird feeling to sit on this side with you know 300 of you and there's one person out there at the front talking to all of you uh, which you know should have been a normal experience for most people but for me that was like oh this is weird look at this amazing well the reason i'm so interested in this in that is that we've home educated one of our children uh, in the secondary years and actually all three of my kids at some time have been home educated and my, my perception of it as a parent is is actually um, better for the creative uh, process because you're just used to um, doing things of your own you're self-motivated you have to do a lot of it on off your own um, fuel uh, if you want um, there's nobody there being prescriptive all the time and I, I'm just wondering um, as a writer now whether you feel that it has given you more freedom in your thinking uh, and in the way that you behave as a writer yes probably um, I, I definitely in all the years that I've met home educated children and obviously if you're home educated you tend to meet more of them because you're more aware of them um, I, I think it first of all nobody ever says oh, no, you don't do it like that. <laughs> they tend to go, oh, go on then, hey, you have a go and let's see what happens. Um, so I think it does, it, it it stops stopping you being creative, if you like. So so it allows you to explore a bit more and to not think, well, there's a way of doing it and there's a way of not doing it. So that's one good thing. And it does make you much more self-motivated, I think, because... Yes, of course, your parents, if they're home educating you, nudge you along a bit, but they're not, there aren't so many exams, there isn't so much being pushed, you've got to push yourself a bit. And I think when I arrived at university, certainly the way I was behaving and studying was much more like the mature students, even though I was only 18, I found a lot more in common with them because they had their own goals in their head and their own things that they wanted to do and they were pushing to get that rather than being sort of dragged <laughs> um, and I think home education certainly helps with that. Well, I'm pleased you said that because that's what my perception mm -hmm. is from our oldest child that actually I say when I look at you working I see a mature student not one who needs to learn how to study when they go to university yes. 
Um, but I think the thinking and the mindset is very different in home education and actually very, uh, very liberating uh, a lot of the time because you don't have that voice saying this is wrong, this is wrong and all the red pen over things all the time. Yes, yes, definitely. And also, also the things that, things are not rammed down your throat quite so much. So I, I find it really depressing when people go, oh, God, Shakespeare. Oh, God. And I go, what do you mean? Oh, God, what? What have you learned? Who has taught you to say that? I mean, fair enough if you've seen loads of it and it just isn't your cup of tea. That, that's okay. But to you just have this blanket um, reaction is awful. Um, and there's got to be something going wrong there that you have that reaction. One of my favourite things is if I go to see Shakespeare, which I quite like Shakespeare, but if you you go and see a production, there will always somewhere in the audience be a very bored looking group of GCSE students who have been dragged there and are not looking forward to the evening at all and what's wonderful is at some point you see them liven up a bit and start laughing because they realize it's funny it's rude it's got sex in it it's got all sorts of stuff and suddenly they see it come alive and they kind of go oh no this is quite cool um and I love that I love watching them I spend half the interval just staring at them going look they like it after all um but it's it's really sad that that things that you enjoy should be knocked out of you like that you know really sad you you've told me uh, already that you've got two books uh, about to come out um, you're finishing off at the british library and you're starting the creative writing phd i'm guessing you must be pretty good at time management as well yeah <laughs> yeah um i i have to say having small children does wonders for your prioritization and time management because when I used to write sort of hobby-like, you know, if I did 500 words a day, I just thought I was the bee's knees. I really did. And, you know, if I'd sent out a query letter, well, wow, look at me, you know. And, and now I'm like, nah, that's not good enough. But, you know, 2,000 words is a good writing day. And query letters, get them out by the dozen. And, you know, you really got to learn to prioritize and speed up your output. Um I read a really, really good book um, recently. It's called The One Thing. Um, and essentially what it comes down to is um, it's by a guy called Gary Keller and Jay Papasan. But essentially it's about prioritizing and it's about when you get a minute to sit down at your desk or wherever it is you're going to do your writing and you think, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that's going to make a big difference? And I think as a writer it's really easy to get caught into a lot of other things you can go oh if I updated all my social media things that would be that would be developing platforms so that would be good um uh, or I could I could do this other thing and that that would be a really good use of my time and actually you have to say is it is that the thing that's going to make the biggest difference and it isn't you know in my case for about six months I knew that the thing that was going to make the biggest difference was applying for the PhD because if I got that that was three years income to write and so that took top priority over everything else um and and it's just a really useful thing to ask yourself so I have a little one of those fridge magnet numbers that children have I have a number one that's pinned up in front of my desk and it just you just think one thing if you can only do one thing what's going to make the biggest difference right now yeah, and I'll endorse that book. It's on my bookshelf to my right here. I, it, is, it is a very, very good when you when you're overwhelmed with things. That picking out from the list 
and saying yeah. what is the thing that's going to move me on i think it's a really focused and useful way to think actually about things um so yeah i would concur yeah. with that um a couple of awards you've had um all, all sorts of awards actually the uh, is it muslexia is that how you pronounce it muslexia novel yes. competition yeah yeah uh the yes, H- so i got long listed for that yeah talk, well talk talk me through the awards because there's a couple and you've got one also for a cover design as well Yes, so um, the the Favourite Concubine got long-listed for the Mislexia Novel Award, which was really nice. It was really nice to have that kind of um, endorsement, if you like. And then it also got Editor's Choice, which meant it automatically got long-listed for the Historical Novel Society. And that was lovely because, you know, that's a bunch of people that are reading your genre all the time. And, And so they really know your genre and they've read all the good stuff out there. And so to be rated highly by that was a really nice thing. The uh, cover award is an online, uh, um, uh, uh, I've forgotten his name now, which is dreadful of me, but he does a lot of um, ebook designs and talks about what looks professional and what doesn't look professional. And um, he has a kind of monthly uh, awards system, if you like. And I loved the cover of The Fragrant Concubine so much. Um, and I put that one in for it and I also loved the breastfeeding one and I put that in for it and I got a cover star for that and that was just really nice it was a nice way to say thank you to my designer so I said look look what you've got Um, and it was a nice just another nice recognition of the work going into making sure that the covers are professional it's Joel Friedlander isn't it is that who you're thinking of yeah yes I was, yes, I'm aware. I'm aware of that award. I just, I was just looking at the bottom of the logo actually as we were speaking. Thinking, oh yeah, I know who the book designer is. It's Joel Friedlander. Yeah. There you go. So, yeah. So have the awards been That's beneficial it. in any way uh, for you? Does it bring traffic in, or is it more just a way of you know people perceiving you as having achieved great things? I think perception is is probably the main thing. I mean, you know, people may have never heard of the Historical Novel Society if it's not their thing, you know. But it's a it's a way of showing that you've been acknowledged by people. It's a way of showing that you've put professional work out there. Um, it's it's a kind of proof, isn't it? It's a social proof, and people like that. People like to go, okay, well, if you're at the British Library, presumably they thought your work was okay, and if you've got this award, presumably they liked your book. And so it's it's social proof. You're doing some nice things on social media, and I think your use of Pinterest has been some of the best use I've seen of it, actually, so far. I really love the way you're using Pinterest as an author. Could you just talk us through your your strategy with that? Because it it really works very well. Thank you. Um, Well, it's interesting because they, you know, when you read about that author platform, everybody says, you must must do everything, all all the social media at once. And the thing is... uh, uh, I'm not that keen on some of it, and it's quite difficult to be good at something you you don't like that much. But you know, you feel obliged to try. But Pinterest, I really love. Um, it just works for me, partly because I write historical fiction. So I uh, initially I was using Pinterest for me because I was collecting images that meant something to me and that I wanted to look at and think, oh yeah, that's how the shoes are, that's how the clothes are, that's how the buildings are. So initially it was for me, and then you think, well. If you're reading this book now, you might like to see all these pictures that I've put together that are my research that show you the details of things. And historical novels often have a lot of um, quite beautiful things to look at. You know, the jewellery, the clothes, the food, the whatever, quite interesting things. So um, what I do is I have a Pinterest allows you to do secret boards and public boards. Um, So what I do is I have a secret 
clipboard for each book that I'm working on. And I develop it and build up the pins, mostly for my own interest. And then when the book is published, I release the board that goes with it and I make it public. And then people can go and see that if they'd like to. So that's one way that I use it with historical fiction. With the non-fiction, I've used it. Um, it's quite nice. Um, I pitched a series uh, to Juno magazine, the parenting magazine, about how um, children can interact with the four elements. So um, earth, uh, fire, water, uh, air. And uh, when I pitched that, I said, I'm going to create a Pinterest board for each of those elements, which will have tons of ideas and games and things that you can do that I don't have time to mention in the article or I certainly don't have time to for each idea I give you to to then explain how you do it all um so that was quite useful for for a pitch I think to be able to say I'm going to set you up a Pinterest board to go with it so that was quite nice and then um for the non-fiction ones I've put up ideas there so for example for the happy commuter I put up a comp of funny pictures of things that people have done on the tube where you just go really really there's a woman sat chopping vegetables on the tube on, on her lap and i'm like okay there's, there's getting ahead of dinner but i mean that's wow um but you know fun there's a woman who crocheted her whole wedding dress on her commute and i thought that's amazing so pictures like that which are kind of fun and also a, a products that i'd seen where i thought well that's quite useful you know nice backpacks or or, you know commuter cups or whatever and I thought well that's quite handy as well so I added all of those in together so the idea is really some of it's for my research and some of it is giving a kind of visual counterpoint to the writing for a reader I think it's really effective what you've done with Pinterest I, I really like it and I've taken some inspiration from that uh, uh, excellent the way you've used it for the fragrant concubine and the consorts really creative with the happy commuter I'm gonna have a look at that I'm looking at the blooms there <laughs> it looks great fun so I'll be having a good dig into that um the the other thing I know you're a member of the alliance of independent authors and I just wondered what support you get from that and whether that's something that you feel is worthwhile yes I like that I like that there's a body out there kind of standing up for it and pushing the boundaries a bit and making some waves because um you know, things like there's a lot of really annoying grants and awards where you're excluded if you're self-published uh, uh, and things like that. And you think, well, that, that's not really fair. You know, I, it's fine for you to judge on the quality, but to just blanket go, well, you're self-published, so we're not even going to have a look at you. I think that's that's really quite unfair. And so the, the Alliance are doing a lot towards things like that, which is great. They have a lot of... Um, articles and ideas and they do the fringe festival um which is really useful i think especially in the early days of being a self-published author to to see that there's a community to read up on things to get some advice so all of that's really useful so i i appreciate them being there and then i think through them <clears throat> you end up finding other uh self-published authors who are doing things that you personally find useful so that's how i found nick Stephen and that's how I found Joanna Penn who I think is a really really interesting person to read up on if you're new to self-publishing and um, her books are very interesting because she has a very entrepreneurial attitude towards writing and it's one that I very much admire. 
you also have a readers group, I believe. How does how does that work on a day to day basis? So that's my email marketing list. So that's me developing up readers that I know have enjoyed at least two of the books. So that's a good start. Um, and what I'd like to do there, that's quite new to me still. So I've only had that going for about six months really properly um, and only a couple of months actually having the reader magnet, which is the consorts to give to people. Um, my idea for it ongoing is to grow them and to find a way of communicating not too often but interestingly (laughs) i i don't like and and because because i explore self-published authors i don't like being bombarded with stuff all the time and and now i'm doing this and i'm doing this and i'm doing this it gets too much and it gets too sellingy um and in the end you just switch off and go whatever um but i do like things for example like swapping uh, marketing lists with other writers so this is something I'm about to do in December um, where a group of you get together and you offer all of your readers together you say well here's some free books uh, here's a prize we've put together if you like it you can enter you can explore other readers so then you're you're helping other people build their marketing list as you're building yours um, and you're sharing things that you have in common so I've seen ones done where it's by genre um, I've seen ones done where there isn't a genre, but, you know, you've, you've put together a group of books and things that you think are of a particular theme or particular interest to people. And that's a way of, of communicating with your readers where you're giving them something over and above your own books, because there's no harm in uh, promoting other writers at the same time. And I think writers are actually very generous in that in this respect, in that they will share knowledge. They will share um trying to build up readers together because there's no i mean apart from time there's no finite amount of books that someone's going to read it's not that because they like someone else's book that they're not going to like yours so you might as well be generous about it what's coming next on your to-do list i know you've got the the phd and you you, you know you've got you're in a time of, of transition but what are your next project aims as far as your writing's concerned so for me the phd is a kind of it's, it's sort of the foundation stone. So this is what I feel that like I'm building at the moment. I've had two years um, since I decided, right, that's it. I'm going to do just the writing. Um, so for me, those two years and the three years of the PhD, that's me building very solid foundations. So um, the PhD obviously is going to take up a fair amount of time, I should imagine. Um, but whilst doing that, I want to be able to do things like... Um, writing commissions or other writer in residencies those sort of things so i've just done a, a small one for uh, sutton council who are doing the imagine arts festival and i've done them a an hg wells poster trail around sutton so things like that where i'm exploring what i can do as a writer and um building up a writing cv so what i did was write a cv for a writer rather than my my business one which is now kind of out of date (laughs) so I built a writing one and I put in all the things I have achieved and then all the things I would like to achieve and you can see where the gaps are you can see what you've got to fill in there and that's quite a useful thing to do and the other thing that I really recommend everybody does is have a business plan um, where you are very clear about the targets that you want to hit and the things that you want to do so that when those opportunities come up you recognize 
recognize them because if you haven't got that then things come and go and you go oh i suppose that might have been interesting but you don't think yes yes that i need to get that um so i think i would like to get into a, a kind of settled pattern with the phd get my head straight again and then start Start looking around at what else can I do? What else can I develop that will make me a better and more interesting writer by the end of those three years? Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.